What's up, everybody? Lenny White here, and I want to welcome you to the IUE Universe podcast. On this podcast, I, Lenny White, want to invite you, the listener, to join me and my guests as we discuss music, arts, science, some amazing personal journeys, and everything in between. Will Lee was greatly influenced to pursue music because of his parents. His father, William Franklin Lee III, played piano, trumpet, and the upright bass professionally. Lee's mother sang with big bands. Lee took up drums after seeing the Beatles on The Ed Sullivan Show, and by the time he was 12, had formed his own band in Miami. The band played popular surfing tunes, characteristic of the 1960s. With the great numbers of drummers in Miami, Will shifted to bass, an instrument that offered much more opportunities. Lee was part of a succession of bands, including top 40 bands with names like Chances Are, The Loving Kind, and Green Cloud. Upon moving to New York City, trumpeter Randy Brecker called Lee and invited him to an audition for Dreams. In New York, Lee's career as a session musician flourished and he toured with many artists. Lee played in a band in New York that was called the 24th Street Band, which had great success in Japan, giving him a solo artist career that yielded him a top five single. In 1982, Lee became one of the original members of the world's most dangerous band, the house band on NBC's Late Night with David Letterman. He holds the distinction of playing with Paul Schaefer on both Late Night and The Late Show, longer than any other musician of the CBS Orchestra. On the May 13, 2015 episode of The Late Show with David Letterman, as Letterman was interviewing Paul Schaefer, Schaefer gave recognition to the members of his band, and lastly mentioned Lee as the man who has been with us on bass since the first night we were on Late Night, Mr. Will Lee. After over 40 years of knowing each other and playing in different situations, Will and I sat down for a conversation. All right, Lenny White back here with another IUE podcast. And right now I have a dear friend who's a fantastic musician. And you've probably seen him for the last 30 years on TV. We have the great Will Lee. Hello, Lenny. And how are you, Wilbur? Great. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> we're actually together here because we're on this um, jazz cruise. Yes. And have you done one of these before? No, it's like a floating festival. Yes, it is. A floating festival of jazz on the sea, which is unique because it's not, they don't play any other kind of music, and the performers are not doing any other kind of music than jazz. That's true. They're very serious about their jazz. Yes, sir. Not only the performers, but especially the audiences. They, oh. they, they sign up for a thing, they want to get that thing. Exactly, exactly. And they're getting that thing. Yes, yeah. Times and so you, million. we were in Cozumel, and you went 
uh, scuba diving today. I actually tried to, but I had to go snorkeling because I ah. couldn't get booked on a scuba th- a trip. But it's so beautiful in Cozumel. Oh. It's a it's a it's a diver's paradise. You're a master diver. I'm uh, what they call a uh, a dive master. I'm okay. at this level called dive master, but I'm also at another level called master scuba diver, which re- what that means you have all these specialties, that certifications, enough to right. to amount to getting a, a card that says master scuba diver on <laughs> it. And mine is signed by Jacques Cousteau. Oh, really? I once asked him to sign that card. Wow. I have it at home. And that's, it's a great thing of great, pride man. to have met that's the great. guy who started it all, all the right. whole scuba thing. Right. Let's talk a little bit about you and your bass playing. Actually, uh, yesterday I learned you told a story. Well, Marcus told a story about you. Um, No, it was Randy. One of them, either Marcus or Randy or you, told a story about... Somebody's lying, sounds like. ...about you being um, in Florida. And how did you get to come to New York? Well, the thing was that there was an amazing band called Dreams. This band had, uh, on the record, it had Mike and Randy Brecker in the horn section, along with Barry Rogers, a great trombonist on the record. Yeah, I knew Barry. It had Billy Cobham on the record. And a lot of these guys were in the actual live playing band. In fact, all the guys that I just mentioned were in the live playing band with with the addition of Don Gromick, the great Bob Mann on guitar. And this was a band that these poor guys did not know I was completely focused on down in, in Florida when I was going to college at the University of Miami. I and all of my peers, my really close musical pals, were in love with that band Dreams. You know, in in a way, a lot of the guys like myself come from not one thing or the other, but we're both equally interested in jazz and rock and roll. Let's just right. say fusion. You might even call it right. jazz rock fusion. Let's just say. And because of that, my little peer group of people that were so focused on dreams almost felt like these guys are the next Beatles. It was that huge in our lives. We would wear out copies of of the first album. So when I get this interesting call to come up to New York and audition, because they were replacing a bassist at the time. Who played bass? A guy guy with the name Chuck Rainey was actually (laughs) (laughs) in the band. With the name Chuck Rainey. I'm so glad I didn't know who that was, (laughs) because I would have never gotten on the plane. First of all, <laughs> Chuck Rainey is my idol to this day, ever since I discovered him. But that's yes. another story. Yeah. Go up to New York. There's an audition. And the guys s- pulled out a, a bunch of sh- sheet music. And I said, fellas, I don't think I may, I may not need to see that. Let's just count it off and see what happens. And I think they were surprised to know that I knew their music backwards and forwards. Wow. Wow. In fact, it was a great relief to them because they had auditioned all kinds of people to try to find their bassist, you know. Right, right. But you had listened to their first album. A million times. Right. Yeah. Right. I was a huge fan. So now I also sang, and they were they thought that was cool too because at the time they were with Columbia Records, Clive Davis was trying to pressure them to be more commercial, if you know what I mean. So, Well, this, this they were out at the same time as Blood, Sweat, and Tears, weren't they? 
really around the same time. In right. fact, Randy came out of Blood, Sweat and Tears exactly. to do this band, Dreams, right. to get into this band. Right. And, um, you know, I loved Blood, Sweat and Tears as well, and I loved Chicago as well, but there was something about Dreams that was just so forward-thinking and futuristic. And, you know, you had guys like Mike Brecker and Billy Cobham right. in this band. I mean, that's, that's an unbelievable combination. It was a great band. Unbelievable. Yeah, so, it was you know, a great band. Yeah. When I came to New York <laughs> to audition, Billy counts the first tune off, and I never felt anything like that in my <laughs> life, where I didn't sort of have to be the drummer right, right, on right. my bass. I could just play. Right, right, Because right. everything else was taken care of. So, you did, did you do any recordings with... with yeah, we did the second album for Columbia. Right, right. There was a second album after that. And then Billy left to go join Mahavishnu. Right. So that was the beginning of the end of that band. That band really didn't carry on much longer after that happened. So what did you do after that band? I mean, you're now, I mean, now you're in New York, so... Yeah, I thought I was going to be going back to Miami, but I had some dear friends that said, look, you're going to stay in our house, we're going to get you work. I said, really? You're not, they said, you're not going back to, to Miami. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> and I stayed in their pad. It was Bob Mann and Alan Schwartzberg. Oh, okay. They had a house together. They let me stay there until I indeed started to get like up and running on my own, which was really a wonderful luxury to have that kind of an offer made to you. That's another thing that, you know, right. I feel it indebted forever to Randy Brecker. So if he, when he calls, that's why I'm here. If, <laughs> if he calls, I'm there. Well, and now, the same is true for Bob Mann and Alice Horsberg. I feel indebted sure. to those guys for life. Did you do a lot of session work after that? I mean, how, how did you sustain yourself while you were in New York? I mean, you had a place to stay, but, like, what else did you do while you were in New York? That was basically the thing that kept me in, yet wanting to stay in town was to, because I got a little into the studio scene through those same guys I just mentioned, Bob Mann and Alan Schwarzberg. I think that was a terrible house guest. I think they wanted me out of the house, so they started getting me some work. <laughs> and uh, luckily, man, you know, I started making all these connections a little bit at a time. And, be, and the Dreams was a big part of people perceiving you to be, like, pretty cutting-edge, you know, like, on-the-scene player. When they hear you're in, that, in Dreams... What year was that? Dreams, I came up to audition and join in 71. 71. 1971. Okay. So right. by 72, the band was pretty much done. And then, you know, besides the studio scene, Mike and Randy got me an audition with Horace Silver. So I was a member of his band for about a year because... Did you play upright bass? Only Fender. Oh. And that was the funny thing. Mike and Randy talked Horace into auditioning a Fender guy. They said, yeah, but he's a Fender guy, but, but he understands the feel of this kind of music, you know. And after that, Horace was open to, to electric bassists. Right. When I left that band, he got Anthony Jackson in the band. Right. This right. was a whole new world for him. But he loved it. So, actually, did you play electric bass with Horace before Stanley? I think so. Right. I think so. Because... But Stanley probably played upright, though. No, 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 no. Stanley played uh, electric bass. When I heard Stanley play with Horace Silva at uh, Slugs 
He was playing electric bass. Wow, and that was definitely it because I was the first guy. So right, it was right, definitely. So that was that's an interesting point. I mean, you know, the fact that you were the first electric bass player to play with Horace Silver. Yeah, it was it was kind of cool. Yeah, and it, right. it felt like a natural fit for was, me. Was Billy in the band? No, it was Alvin Queen. Alvin Queen played drums. Oh, great. Cool, cool. That was great. So it was Horace, Alvin Queen, you, Randy, and Michael. That's right. That was wow. the quintet. You know, we did, toured Europe, played festivals, did uh, around the States. Right, right. That That's great. So you played with Horace Silver after Horace Silver? After Horace Silver... Um, I got a call. I was, meanwhile, I'm still doing studio work all, right. all while all this is going on. This, right. is, this is a continuing thread in my life. I got an audition, not uh, not even an audition. Don Grolnick was in Bette Midler's band, and they were about to do their first national tour. So Grolnick had the incredible ability to talk them into hiring me without an audition. I said, you, wow. just, "You're going to get this guy." Wow. So great. then I was in that that thing. And, and, you know, the studio world was really interesting. I never dreamed of getting... I've done like 1,800 albums at this point. Or maybe, right, right. You know, or two couple Jingles, of Jingles, albums, or whatever, you know. Jingles are a big thing that was a daily thing that was going on every morning. But the feeling that... The thing that I understood was I got into the studio thing. I kind of slid in because I noticed they would just call somebody new or somebody, they had to get a guy if, if their normal guy was going out of town or something. Right. So I knew that the if they ever had the idea that I was out of town, that was the same thing was going to happen to me. Right. I'd get replaced by the next guy in line, you know. And I wasn't even the guy in line. I just kind of got in there somehow. So I never let anybody know I was out of town. If I got a call to do a thing, I would fly back in and get myself back out on the road that same night for <laughs> whatever wherever the tour was exactly exactly because so that's you know you had to do that in in doing in doing sessions do you remember or can you name some of the records that you played on during those th that time period oh, I, you, I know you did a million so <laughs> but like do any come to mind that like would be records that listeners would really well, you know, there was a whole lot of those CTI records. There was a lot of sessions out at Rudy Van Gelder's for the CTI series. Art Farmer, uh, Sir Roland Hanna. Um, um, <laughs> you got, uh, there was like Bob James albums and, and Don Sebesky records. And, right. you know, Beck and Sanborn and uh, Grant Green and... Just a ton of stuff. We were right. just turning them out, you know. And, um, you know, I was part of Herbie Mann's thing, did a little touring with him and recording with him. There's, there's a few of those. Well, you see, so you were one of the guys in New York at the time that played electric bass and had a particular sound and had a particular way that you played the electric bass that, that gave you some versatility and gave you a lot of different and put you in a lot of different situations. Can you talk about your instrument? Sure. It's easy to talk about that because I've, I've finally figured out over time that there's two 
underlying things that gave that give me the ability to to actually hear and know what to do. And one of those things, the, the very first foundational thing, is the fact that I grew up in a household where jazz was played all the time. Both my parents were jazzers. My dad a bebop piano player, my mother a big band singer. Mm. And they loved music so much that there was music playing records, you know, whenever there was anybody in the house. So right. my first, like, lesson in life was feel. And feel is at the root of just about everything that I've ever been a part of. And it, uh, hearing and feeling what, what that is coming from jazz has given me like a building block right. to relate to what is good and what is bad about music. So I grew up sort of like listening to Paul Chambers and listening to cats who just feel was everything. Right. You know, feel was, was the thing that was driving jazz that I loved and my parents loved listening to. So I got it, I got it in my body to know what that is way early on. And the other, the other foundational sort of building block that gave me, informed me throughout everything I did, and that, that includes any style you can name, it was the Beatles. <laughs> when the Beatles... Well, I was going to ask you about that, but that was a little yeah. bit later on, because you do a Beatle, Beatle band. I do, for some reason. Yes, yeah. yes. But, I, but I'll talk... But... but Going on what it is that you just talked about, my question is, do you think that it's a valid point to say that playing jazz gives you the building blocks for any other kind of music that you play? I do. Example, last night we played together. Right. There is a language that, you know, cats can just get together and just do something with a... with a a certain level of swing that everybody agrees on and it's really easy to lock in with guys who who know what that is you know right you're one of those guys Marcus Miller's one of those guys and you know of course we we all kind of got our our chops in New York right and that's also very helpful for the for the way we feel things together you know but well, but that's yeah, a great thing. Yeah, New York. New York is a melting pot, not just for um, people, but cultures. Sure. I mean, you know, the Latin been, thing is strong up there. It's been said that New York is the center of the universe, so everybody comes and uh, gets together in the center of the universe, and like you know, you find out different things about other people, about other cultures, about other musics. That's Everything a great, yeah. By being in New York City. Yeah. You know, so, and that, that's, that, that's a real special thing. We have a, a great point. view of the world because of that. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. You know. So, now, talking about, what bass do you play? I currently play my own, uh, it's a Sadowski. Mm-hmm. So Roger Sadowski made this makes wonderful basses and he and I got together and made a signature bass. So it's a Will Lee Sadowski bass. Yeah, and that's another thing about the Marcus thing. You and me and Marcus playing last night I reminded me of um, the fact that Marcus and I came up you know, in that studio thing exactly. simultaneously. So 
you know, in New York, Roger Sadowski was a guy who treated our basses to, right. to give them a certain kind of sound. So that's another thing that we that that enabled us to sort of feel like family, like right off the bat. Exactly. You know, well, but it's, it's it's important for you to have a sound. I mean, it's important for young musicians to to aspire to get a sound. Mm -hmm. So when they speak in whatever kind of music it is, everybody knows it's it's them talking. Mm -hmm. Like, but now you loving the Beatles. And then you, you got to tell me how you got to do Letterman because with Letterman, you played with everybody because everybody came on that show mm -hmm. and you played with everybody. And your affinity for music in general gave you these different opportunities to play with these different kinds of people and these different kinds of musics and make it feel like Will Lee is playing the bass. So you gotta you gotta tell me how, you know, you got from playing with Horace Silver. I mean, first playing with Dreams, then Horace Silver, then into the studio scene, and then I guess, how did the Letterman gig come about? Well, I think what equipped me to do Letterman was was the studio scene itself. So, imagine you get a call. You go, you got to be at a session at ten o'clock in the morning. You don't know what you're going to do. You walk in. They say, okay, this is going to be a country western thing. And you go, well, okay. Um, okay, do I have any, any technique for that? No, I do not necessarily. So, so you pick up your instrument and you try to go for that sound. And you learn how to get that sound because that's, the, that's your job. You have to, you know. And this is funny, man. I, I posted a photo of last night's... Uh, a gig that we did Marcus and I are, are front and center and you can see that on our bases there is a, a, a strip of metal that goes over the pickups Right, it's a pickup cover and everybody's going oh yeah Will has a, a pickup cover just like Marcus you know? <laughs> and the funny thing about that is um, okay so I I did that first because I needed a way to anchor my hand in the studio when people were throwing all these directions at you. Okay, now you got to do the Larry Graham thing and you got to play with your thumb. Okay, now you got to do the, the finger style thing. With your fingers, now you got to play with a pick. Right. Instead of having my hand just free floating in space over the, over the uh, string and me playing imprecisely, I had a way of anchoring my hand in place so I could go back and forth between all these techniques. So that's, that's what that, why that's what I that kept that is, thing right. on there. Okay. And right. then I once read in an article, somebody asked Marcus, why do you have that thing on there? And, and I swear to God, I read these words. Marcus said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, I saw Will Lee do it and I thought it looked cool. <laughs> <laughs> and now he's got the crutch for life. <laughs> right, right. And I feel guilty. But, but, that, but it's a good thing. It, it I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it was good at the time because right. it actually made you able to really be stable with your hand, right, and play whatever, whatever. Right, right. And it, I'm, now I'm completely dependent upon that. Right. When somebody asks me to sit, sit in in a club and hand me their bass, and I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> here we go. It doesn't have the thing, of course, so right. I'm do the best I can. So, so give me this transition to Letterman. Uh, the transition was simply 
you know, as you were saying, you know, the New York thing is a really big reason why a thing like that is possible. Just right place, especially right place. And if you're in the right place, the right time seems to come up more often than if you're not in the right place. So this was the right place, right time. I'm in New York, and you know, things, towns like New York or L.A., this is where these things come from, these right. TV shows and things like that. So it seemed an obvious choice for Paul Schaefer to call me because he knew I could do all these styles. You know, I'd put the hours in. I did the studio life. And not only when myself, did you, when, did when did you meet Paul? When did you meet I met him in about like 75 maybe, 74, 75. Mm-hmm. We, he came down from Canada and he was arranging a, a session for a guy and um, you know and the great thing was that he had already known about me because I think by then I'd played on some some hit records like maybe some Barry Manilow stuff Mandy or some of those kind of you played on Mandy yeah those yeah. early see when I asked you, you I asked Cabana. you before to tell me some records that you played on the people would know. So, oh, I was in the jazz category at that moment. No, I'm talking about any category. Oh my God! You're well, Will Lee, you play every kind of music. I played on the Captain Kangaroo show a few times. Anyway, oh, <laughs> no, that's true. Um, so Schaefer and I got along like gangbusters. We were best friends immediately. For some reason, he was such a nice guy, you know, and he had so much respect. And I was just like, I love you, man. Let's hang, you know. And he thought I dressed cool, and he started trying to copy me and stuff. <laughs> and I just cool. thought, man, this guy's—he's—he knows everything, and he—he he does. He's like a walking encyclopedia of of music. It's right. incredible. So you guys did—I mean, who was Antoine the first drummer? Steve Jordan. Steve Jordan was the first drummer, right? Steve Jordan and Hiram Bullock and and Schaefer and myself were the were the original band because exactly Steve and Hiram and I had just had a band together called the 24th Street Band. That's right. That's and right. We were, I remember that band. We had broken up and and Schaefer, Paul Schaefer was kind of in the family a little bit. He actually played on our second album. He was in the studio with us a lot at the time, just hanging and stuff and laughing it up and having a good time. So when the band broke up, Steve Hiram and I seemed like a logical kind of ready-made band that he knew he could count on to do anything. So we kind of felt like a band from the beginning because we kind of were a band. You know? Right. You could, you guys did a lot of playing up at McKell's too. Yeah, with each other and with separate you know, exactly. artists, different artists and cats, yeah. Right, right, right. I forgot about a lot of the... I, I've been given a tape recently where I was playing with Cornell Dupree's band and Stevie Ray Vaughan came in and sat, sat in with this one night. I don't even remember this. Right, right. And Benson, same right. thing. I don't remember. Well, it was that that cl- it was New York, and it was that climate. Those things happened it was all loose. the time. Yeah, right. And you know what was kind of cool to me is that the format of Letterman and the Tonight Show and all of you know Arsenio later on, it was kind of a situation where like they'd have somebody come on and talk. And then they would have an artist come on. It was kind of like what was happening at McKell's and all these other clubs that we would visit. And people would come in and sit in and play. They'd do a couple of tunes or whatever and do that. So when you see that format, somewhat happened on TV, it was kind of cool to do that. 
I mean, in like you know, like the the, the early bands with Letterman, with you and Hiram and Steve Jordan, you guys like were playing some loose stuff sometimes, man. Mm-hmm. And McKell's was such a great, great New York scene. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the process. Vince Wilburn and I are, are scheming right now to get some Mikkel's T-shirts made. Really? Yeah. I want you to know they're going to be out of market. Do you talk to Pat about that? Yeah. She's going to really? give me the, the, the design, and I'm going to go in to a company, and we're going to commission that so that they can sell the Mikkel's T-shirt That's again. That's great. Speaking of Vince, one of the things that I do ask most of the people that I do interviews with I mean, fortunately for me, I got a, I, it was an opportunity for me to, to be a part of it. But the Bitches Brew record, when you first heard that. Which one? Bitches Brew. Uh-huh. Miles Davis. What did you think of that direction, and how did that, that album affect what it is for me, that you did? For me, it didn't seem like a direction. I, I, I had a hard time latching on to it, in a way. If you know what I mean, I, like, I just—it wasn't the easiest thing for me to to say. I love that track, you know, because <laughs> it seemed like cats were kind of fishing a little bit. <laughs> Having said that, one of my favorite Miles records is is uh, a tribute to Jack Johnson, right? You know, and that's almost in the same category. But I think it was the combination of guys on that record that really made it for me. I, that kind of thing was also sort of fishing in a way, but it, it had a nice. There were some grooves on there that that there were some parts on there that to me are like hits, like like hooks. Right, right, right. Especially Miles's playing. Oh, Miles! Miles is playing. I can sing those those right, right those those trumpet parts, and he was just completely. Well, Improvising. This, this is right after Woodstock. You know, things were changing. Mm-hmm. Music was changing directions, and in all sorts of different directions in in culture, were happening and doing different things. Now, you being a huge Beatles fan, how did that influence your playing? Well, in a situation where you were. This is this is going back to the studio. Um, you're sitting down. Somebody wants you to. Somebody's put a bunch of chord slashes in front of you, and and you have to come up with a part. And quite often, it would be this question in my mind would be, what would the Beatles do right here? You know. And of course, I wouldn't try to put a Beatles lick in there or anything like that. But it would also, it it kind of just let me let me land on something, you know. It, it, especially when people didn't have a clue what they wanted, you know. And often producers would get a gig as producer, and you don't know how they got there. You'd be <laughs> like, man, here's a person who really is taking a paycheck and does not know what the hell they're doing, you know. Right. So you'd you'd have you'd be a you'd be subject to to sh- to to be in a room with one of those people and then they would be like clueless. And you'd have to have some you'd have to offer up something, you know. But but see now it's very interesting because how basically what you're saying is that 
a producer may not have an, a particular idea about a song, but may have some chords there, and then you come up with a concept and a baseline that creates a song, but you don't get paid for it. Oh, that's happened a lot. Yeah. It's very Mr. Phillips, what a difference a day makes is one of those moments. <laughs> so tell me about the, what's it called, for the band? The Fab Faux, F-A-U-X, yeah. Yeah, Fab Fox. 20 years. So 40 far. years you've been 20, doing that? Oh, 1998. Wow. At this, mo- at this point. Who else is in that band? I started the band, I met a drummer who was actually on a Hiram one of the trio gigs that we we went to Europe and stuff and Hiram uh, always liked to have singing drummers because he liked the three-part harmony thing in 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 a trio and I met a guy named Rich Pagano and we throughout this tour were talking about the Beatles a lot and I could hear in his playing that he that he had a lot of Ringo in him in his style and in in his singing it reminded me of John Lennon quite often. And I had never in my life thought of doing a Beatle band. Why would I do that? I got too many other things going on. The Beatle band doesn't seem like anything that's been done and blah, blah, blah. But at one point, I started to think, man, it would really be fun to bring the Beatles records to the stage with this guy. And I also had in mind a guy named Jimmy Vivino, who's for all these years has been the musical director on the Conan O'Brien show and, and he's a New York guy from way back he's, he's done a million things in New York and I also knew that it had to be in my mind a five piece band because I'd, I'd seen those Beatles band that, that try to look like the Beatles dress up like the Beatles hey look at us we're the Beatles no you're not the Beatles and they would make the mistake of pretending to be the Beatles so they would, all, they would only have four musicians right and with four musicians, you can't really cover that much of the Beatles' territory because, like, the Beatles had a, 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 a few records where it was just the four guys, but then they really expanded into exactly. some other really magical stuff. And those records have, like, percussion parts sometimes or keyboard parts sometimes and very often doubled vocals, and that's a sound that, as a studio singer, I learned the magic of doubling a vocal. Right. and how that can be very forgiving and really and make for a really magical sound. And a lot of those Beatle records have these kind of gang vocal sounds. And it's very exciting to hear that. So to pull it off, you needed a more than just a look-alike amount of guys, more than four guys. And it really has been working out really nice. You know, we figured out... Uh, Who's the fifth guy? There are, there are two other guys that I didn't mention, and Jack Petrozelli, who I didn't know in the beginning. And he was wonderful. And another guy named Frank Ignello, who's also wonderful and knows like a lot of details about not only the Beatles, but he's like a data collector kind of guy. He just knows trivia about everything <laughs> in music, in, in, especially like pop music and rock and roll and stuff. So you guys have been touring for a while. Yeah, 20 years. That's amazing. We don't really tour. We kind of go out on weekends and come back and sleep in our own bed on Sunday night. Mm. So it's kind of nice. Cool, 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 cool. You've done a lot of touring. Yes, I have. I I did a lot of touring. I mean, I toured. Real touring. I I did touring for 10 years. And then I stopped touring for 10 years. 
and got back into it, you know, doing this and doing that. But it's a different mindset. It's a different lifestyle. It is. Touring. And and especially if you're trying to start a family, raise a family, it's pretty difficult to do, you know. So, I can um, only imagine. But, but I had a very, very uh, understanding wife and understanding sons. Mm. So, I mean, uh, they actually helped me do it. Um, now, it's a totally different situation. And not saying that I don't, you know, want to do that. I like to do that. But I kind of want to be able to have other things in mind and try to do other things, venture into other things rather than just touring, you know. I think that's a part of what it is that I want to do and continue to do, like we all do. I well, mean, you're in demand from a lot of, being pulled from a lot of different sides. People are coming to Lenny White. Yeah, a lot of they, different things. Yeah, you and, know? and you're able to do so many things. That, so, you know, it would be frustrating for you to get to get into one thing and just have to stay there. Yeah. And then there's so much fun to be had. <laughs> right? Definitely. Hey, Willie, it's been a pleasure to sit and talk with you. We've been friends for such a long time. We've played music together with the Brecker Brothers and whatever else we did. <laughs> and I'm, we will continue to do that. We'll continue to be friends and continue I to play music. I certainly hope so. You know, and it's been a pleasure, man. You too, Lenny. Thank you, man. Hey everybody, Lenny White here again, and thanks for listening. Stay tuned for new podcasts coming from the IUE universe. For more information, visit our website at IUE.com, and that's spelled I-Y-O-U-W-E-E.com. See you next time.